Mark chapter 9, verse 14, the chapter begins with Jesus taking his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they're taken up on that place, they see a glorious vision of Jesus. Jesus is shining out in the radiance of God and Moses and Elijah appear with them also. And it's just a glorious occasion up there on that mount. The difficulty with a situation like that is you have to come down from the mountain sometime or another. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus and the disciples where we pick it up in Mark 9, 14. It says, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? You get the situation. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And what does he see? A big argument. Now, nine of the disciples, let's remember the three of them were up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but nine of the disciples were there. And apparently, as we're going to find out in the following verses, they had been trying very hard to help a boy who was demon-possessed. And they did the best they could. I'm sure they, they prayed a lot of prayers. I'm sure they anointed him with oil. I'm sure they, they, they did the very best they could, but nothing seemed to help the boy at all. And then it seems that the scribes, these religious authorities, came in and they used that as a point of criticism against the disciples. And can't you imagine these poor disciples? They feel bad enough already. We couldn't help the boy. I guess we don't have as much faith. I don't know what's going on. And then these scribes come, yeah, well, I guess you guys are wrong. I guess your whole movement's wrong. I guess your Savior's wrong. And they're really starting to lay it on the disciples. Jesus comes down and he says, stop. Let me speak on behalf of my disciples. You guys talk to me. And he says, what's going on here? What are you discussing with them? And look at it here, verse 17. Then one from the multitude answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever he seizes him, he throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So when I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, but they could not. How frustrating. How frustrating for Jesus. You know, Jesus comes down from the mountain. He finds disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. Now wait, before it's over, he's going to silence the scribes. He's going to comfort the father. He's going to heal the boy, and he's going to instruct the disciples. All that just in the next few minutes. But I want you to notice this. It's amazing how these scribes could be so critical of the disciples. I mean, what I think is interesting about it is, if they're so right, why don't they go deliver the boy? They never thought of that, right? They never thought to prove how orthodox they were by saying, well, why don't you do it? Why don't you have your best at it? But no, they couldn't. So they leave him with this kind of conflict, and this was exactly the kind of conflict that made Peter want to stay up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember what he said when he was up there? He said, Lord, let's stay here forever. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one Elijah. Let's never leave here. And Peter, when he comes down from the mountain, he goes, this is exactly why I didn't want to leave there. Who wants to come down to this? But friends, it can't be that way. You simply have to come down off the mountain and deal with what you have. You have to deal with what's in front of you. And so they did. And what they had was they had a boy here who had a mute spirit. Now, you know what mute is, right? It's on your remote control. You press it and all the sound goes off. This boy couldn't speak. And in the eyes of contemporary Jewish exorcists, in the eyes of the superstitions of that day, that was a difficult, if not impossible, demon to cast out of somebody. Because in the superstitions of the day, you could only cast a demon out if you got the demon to tell you his name first. Ah, but the mute demon was very clever, right? 
because he pushed the mute button on the afflicted individual and he couldn't speak, so he couldn't tell you his name, so there's no way you could cast him out, at least according to the superstitions of the day. But the power of Jesus is not subject to the superstitions of the day. And so Jesus is going to deal with this situation. But this demonic spirit within the boy did more than just cause him to be mute. If you saw in verse 18, it says, Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. The boy displayed signs that many people today would regard as evidence of epilepsy or another similar ailment. And uh, I think it's interesting to see that Jesus perceived that this was caused by demonic possession. Now, friends, I think there's two erroneous things we can get off on. And one erroneous thing you can think is to think that every physical affliction that happens to a person's body is because of a demonic spirit. No, there's a such thing as germs and viruses in a fallen world where uh, our bodies are affected by the fallenness of this world. But there's also another extreme you could go to. And the idea is that it's impossible for a person to be demon-possessed and for it to show itself in bodily affliction. And certainly this is this kind of case. Surely some people today that are diagnosed, and let me say some people today that we diagnose as physically or mentally ill, really they have a problem with the demonic possession. And that was certainly the case here in this situation. The sad tragedy is that the disciples were unable to deal with it. There's few sadder words in the whole Gospel of Mark than at the end of verse 18 where it says, I spoke to your disciples that they should cast them out, but they could not. It's very discouraging to try to do something spiritually and fail. And there were the disciples. They, they gave it their best shot. They cared. They wanted to do something. They, they wanted to be the heroes in this situation. And they remembered that previously in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had given them authority over unclean spirits. But apparently it didn't work this time. Friends, it's interesting, and I suppose we could get way too speculative on this, but apparently some demonic spirits are stronger than others. That is, they're more stubborn or they're more intimidating than others. In Ephesians chapter 6, it seems to to describe different ranks of demonic beings. And it isn't a stretch to think that some ranks might be more powerful than others. And I'm the last one to say that we understand all of this. We don't. The Bible just doesn't give us as much information as our curiosity wants to hear. But apparently, some demonic spirits are stronger than others. And this one was a strong one. And the disciples seemed to be successful before in dealing with people afflicted with demonic spirits. But not this time. But it's no problem for Jesus. Take a look at verse 19. He answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, who's the faithless generation? Who's Jesus speaking of? We think, well, maybe he's speaking of the scribes who are just standing on the sidelines and criticizing. Maybe he's speaking of the disciples who didn't really have the faith that they should have to function in this particular challenge. Maybe he's speaking of the father who we're going to see shortly has his own challenges. Maybe he's speaking of the crowd. Maybe he's just speaking of everybody. But he says, bring the boy to me. And look at it now in verse 20. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. How would you feel if you were the father and this happened? You'd say, a lot of good it did bringing him to Jesus. I bring him to Jesus and he gets worse. It's terrible. But friends, don't you see something here? The demon inhabiting that boy knows that his time is short. He knows that he's in the presence of the Son of God. 
And so he's saying, listen, I'm going to do some damage or I'm going to kick up as much dust as I can to see whatever I can do. My time is running short in this situation. The, the, the devil wants to get as much mischief in as he can and he wants to do as much as he can even though his, no, his time is short with this boy here. But now notice what his father says in verse 21. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. That's the whole strategy of the demonic spirit. Demons hate human beings. Then you might scratch your head and say, why? What have I ever done to them? You know, really, don't you think that sometimes? What's in it for them? Why do they hate you? Why do they hate I? Well, I'll tell you, there's a couple of reasons why they hate us. The first and the most profound reason is because I'm looking out at a room full of people who are made in the image of God. Satan doesn't like the image of God, and neither do the fallen spirits who are in association with him. You are made in the image of God, and he doesn't like that. Here's the other thing. The Bible says that uh, the, the, the people of God, when they are glorified in the resurrection, that one day they will sit in judgment over angels. Every soul that Satan can drag down to hell, that's one less person that's going to sit over him and other, angelic, other demonic spirits in judgment. He wants to prevent your glorification. And he wants to get back at God in any way that he can. And you're the battleground. And so look at the destructive impulse here. He's throwing him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. This poor father, he, he comes to Jesus, he, he tells him what the problem is. Now look at the end of verse 22 where he cries out to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now on the surface, there seems nothing wrong with that question. But because of Jesus' reply, I think that the guy's heart wasn't really in the right place when he said that. I think the emphasis in the guy's heart was on if you can do anything. <laughs> Come on, Jesus. The other people couldn't do anything. Your disciples couldn't do anything. The scribes couldn't do anything. If you can do anything, then please help me. In the man's mind, there was a big if here. And the if was, Jesus, if you can do anything. Now look at Jesus' response. 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 I'm going to start at verse 22 here. And he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. You see the contrast? Jesus says, listen, there's a big if at work here, mister. But the if isn't if I can do it. The if is if you can believe. If you can believe. If you can believe the promise of God is true. If you can trust in me. If you can rely on me to this extent. Then all things are possible to him who believes. Friends, sometimes we complicate things in the Christian life so much where really so often it comes back to just believing that God is true. What's well, a terrible thing to call a man a liar, isn't it? Well, why would we call God a liar? God's true. God's perfectly honest in everything that he says. Just look at God and just say this. He's not a liar. When he says something, he means it. He's true. Friends, please understand that we have to be persuaded of this in our own heart and let God be true and every man a liar. You ever seen that bumper sticker? And maybe some of you have it on your car and I'll be embarrassed if you do because um, I'm going to kind of make fun of it right now. But <laughs> it's the bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. 
Well, friends, there's a problem with that logic there. Because you know what? God said it. That settles it, whether you believe it or not. It's not as if my belief puts the final note of authority on it. It should say, God said it. That settles it. I believe it. Now, friends, that's the attitude we have to take. You know, it really doesn't matter what other evidence comes up. You could line up a thousand angels and each one of them could swear to the truthfulness and the veracity of God. What difference would that make? We have God's own word on it. We don't need any other testimony. Friends, we have the absolute testimony that God is true. We know it from the word of God. We know it from our own lives. And we can trust in God's truth above everything else. And that's why Jesus challenges this man. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And Jesus challenged the man, and I would say that in his first response, the man's response was, was mixed, because he wanted to believe. At the same time, he knew that his faith wasn't quite there. Look at it in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that a precious statement? When you read that, isn't there something within you that says, yes, that's me. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The the poor father in this account, he's challenged by Jesus' exhortation for faith. Jesus said, all I got to do is believe. Well, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I believe in your power to deliver my boy. I wouldn't have brought him to you if I didn't believe in it, Jesus. But at the same time, there's something within me that doubts. So he tearfully pled with Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, in this case, the man's unbelief was not a rebellion against God or a rejection of God's promise. Some unbelief, some doubt is nothing but sin. When you look at God and say, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, friends, that's sin. And sometimes people want to put a pleasant shine on that. They want to talk about the nobility of doubt and how isn't it wonderful we should all have doubts. And friends, believe me, I know it's very easy to misunderstand me on this point because there is a such thing as noble doubting. There is a such thing as people who struggle to come to faith. But let's understand that there is also a category of totally sinful, rebellious doubt and unbelief. You see, I'd ask the question right here. Are you denying God's promise or are you desiring it? The man wanted it. It just seemed too good to be true. And so it says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And friends, I can't give you some kind of absolute dividing line. This is the dividing line where it says, well, over here on this side, your, your, your doubt is good and honorable and it'll help you to come to a stronger faith. And over here, your doubt is wicked and rebellious and, and you're doubting the truthfulness of the living God. I, I can't draw that line in your life, but I trust the Holy Spirit will. Friends, we need to give up every evil, every wicked doubt and and, and expression of unbelief in our life, but every sincere doubt, every sincere expression where we would cry out with this man, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What do you do? You bring it to Jesus. You bring it to Jesus and let him minister to it. He does care and, and he will touch that. Might I say this? Help my unbelief is something a man can only say by faith. First of all, it takes faith to see that you have unbelief. When men have no faith, I think they're unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little bit of trust in God, then they begin to see the greatness of their unbelief. But that's not the only aspect. 
I think you can't see your unbelief until faith is working in you. But as well, I don't think you can say, help my unbelief until faith is working in you. So friends, if that's you this morning, if you stand before God and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, you're in a good place. Come to God. Ask him to help you with your unbelief and he will help you. Those doubts, those fears, those things, bring them to God in sincerity and openness and he will minister those things in your life. Now look at what Jesus did with this young man beginning here at verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. Can you imagine this poor father now? (laughs) Friends, I don't know why the Lord has some people just stretched to the extremity of belief. But it was just what this father needed. And now this father says, Good heavens, thank you for casting the demon out of the boy. Now he's dead. (laughs) Jesus, what's up with that? This poor father was really stretched to an extremity of trust. But friends, I want you to see this. I want you to see that knowing that the demon had to leave, the demon did the most damage that he could before he left, but God would not allow it to be lasting damage. No way. Because look at what happens in verse 27. But Jesus took him up by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. He's fine. He's great. The boy's delivered. It's a victory of the the power of Jesus. It's a victory of the faith of the man. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's work. Now, the whole issue isn't resolved yet. Because if you notice in verse 28, And when he had come into the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? I love how the disciples like to ask those questions privately. You know, the smart, the intelligent, the really brainy questions, they ask those publicly. But why could we not cast them out? That was private news. (laughs) Notice here, verse 29, So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. You see, this was the reason for their spiritual weakness. It was due to a lack of prayer and fasting. I think we need to understand this carefully. It isn't that prayer and fasting make us more worthy to cast out demons or to accomplish things spiritually. That's not the point at all. Sometimes people get that in their head. You know, um, you've got to get this many brownie points before God, and prayer and fasting is a great way to store them up. And when you get this many brownie points before God, wow, then you can go out and be effective spiritually. Friends, that's not the idea at all. Simply put, it's this. Prayer and fasting draws closer to the heart of God and it puts us more in line with His power. Prayer and fasting are simply an expression of our total dependence upon the Lord. Now earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gave these same disciples the authority to cast out demons. But the authority that Jesus gives us is only effective if we exercise it by faith. And faith is cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. And prayer and fasting was the way that the disciples needed to express this, but they did not. Friends, I just want you to understand this. There's no magical power in prayer and fasting, but there's tremendous power in devotion and dependence upon God. And we can talk about depending on God all we want, 
But until you pray, you're not really expressing it. You can talk about focus and dependence and devotion upon the Lord. But friends, when you say to God, you know what, God, the food I eat isn't important to me. But seeking after you and your will, that's what's important to me. That's devotion unto God. That's following after God's heart. And God will honor that. And so we understand here that that total dependence on God is the remedy for many spiritual problems. It puts the focus on Him, and that's what all good prayer and fasting does. The focus is never, look at how much I pray, or look at what a great faster I am. No, that's never the focus. The focus is on the Lord God and on Him. And everybody who understands fasting and prayer properly understands this. See, my friends, the whole point is to trust in God and prayer and fasting, express that trust in a powerful way. I never forget something I read years ago in a marvelous commentary, uh, Romans verse by verse by William, William Newell. And he has a section in there, a few words about grace, and in one section of that it's uh, things that gracious souls discover. And I remember this sentence very clearly. He said, to be disappointed in yourself is to have trusted in yourself. Isn't that the way it is in our walk before God? If you're disappointed in yourself, oh, I've fallen again. Oh, I didn't trust the Lord. Oh, that, I'll tell you what, you were trusting in yourself. If you trust in the Lord, you will never be put to shame, never. God will always show us triumph in you, always. But friends, how easy it is for us to trust in ourselves instead of the Lord. Well, they move on from this situation and look at verse 30. They departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus is now on his dramatic, uh, well, I don't want to say march, his dramatic journey towards Jerusalem. This is going to be his final visit to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified, where he's going to die and be buried, but he will rise again the third day in glory. And as he discusses these things with his disciples, they don't really get it. Matter of fact, they they were more interested in discussing other things, as we're going to find out in verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? We can just imagine the disciples all walking together and Jesus can kind of overhear their conversation. He sees them arguing and they're disputing about something. You know, when you're disputing, probably voices get raised. Jesus hearing some of this. They probably didn't want Jesus to hear, but he heard it anyway. Look at verse 34. But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. You know, this seemed to be the favorite topic of conversation among the disciples. They weren't interested in theological technicalities, you know, predestination, free will, you know, the authority of this, the authority of that, God's sovereignty, man's response. No, 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 no. The real issue they wanted to get down to was, who's greatest among here? See, friends, so central in their mind is the thought that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to establish a political kingdom, and they wanted a prestigious post in Jesus' political kingdom. That's exactly how they thought of the matter. See, on their way to Jerusalem, there they are, they're considering all this. And he says, well, you know, Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the new king of Israel and he's going to be in political power and destroy the authority of the Roman government. I'm going to be a secretary of state. 
Well, you're not going to be a secretary. I'm going to be secretary of state. You can be secretary of commerce. Commerce. Who wants that? It says, well, I want to be his chief general. Well, well, I want to be his chief of staff. And I'm arguing, bickering. This is what it was all about. All because of their carnal visions of what the kingdom of God was all about. And they argued and they bickered. And, and when Jesus called them on it, they were embarrassed. Did you see it there in verse 34? But they kept silent. Oh, that embarrassed silence, right? The I'm busted silence of the disciples. But Jesus is going to teach them. Look at verse 35. And he sat down, called the twelve. Now, that's significant that he sat down. It means that he's going to teach. In the ancient world, the posture of teaching, and what a change it is from nowadays, in the posture of teaching, the teacher sat and everybody else stood. Now, how we've turned that around, I don't know. You know, but that's how it was back then. So when Jesus sat down, they all gathered around, they stood around, Jesus is going to teach him something. Look at it here, verse 35. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, oh, and they're hanging on every word now. Like, yes, tell me the secret, Jesus, tell me the secret. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. I bet the disciples blinked when Jesus said that. Maybe they whispered. Did he say what I thought he said? He didn't say that, did he? Well, yes, he did say that. My friends, I'm amazed at Jesus' response. Can we remember what the question at hand was? What was the question at issue? Who is the greatest? First of all, if I was Jesus, and how thankful we are that I'm not. If I was Jesus, I would have said, hey, guys, don't you get it? I'm the greatest. Hello? Messiah, son of God, you just said it a few chapters ago. The second thing I would say is, you spiritual wimps couldn't even cast the demon out of the boy. What are you guys talking about greatest? You have no credentials here at all. Well, praise the Lord that I wasn't there in that situation. Jesus doesn't even put the focus on himself. For an example of greatness, Jesus says, if you want to be first, be last of all and servant of all. And how this completely turns around the worldly way of thinking that that, that we just swim in every day. How many times have you seen it on the sidelines of a professional athletic event? Where the the crowds are there and the the team is there on the sidelines and they're, they're shouting for the camera. They say, hi mom. And then they say, we're last of all. It's not going to happen, is it? Nobody wants to be last. Now, the way we think of it usually is that last of all is something that you accept when you're forced to accept it. You know, be a good loser. Show good character. When you're last of all, you you know, don't don't be upset and, and take it like a man and all that. Friends, Jesus isn't talking about how to embrace last when when it's forced upon you. He's telling us to take it as a choice. To allow others to be preferred before us. Friends, the desire to be praised and to gain recognition should be foreign to a follower of Jesus Christ. It just, it just doesn't matter. Well, I'd rather have you. Well, why don't you? Yes, you. I'll take the last place. It's fine. That's the heart Jesus is trying to get across. And then he says, not just last of all, and then he says, servant of all. Mm, two words, very tough there. First of all, servant, and then all. You see, we don't like being a servant, number one. And secondly, servant of all. Now, I'd rather be servant of some, thank you very much. But she says, no, servant of all. 
You see, in the worldly idea of power, the great man or the great woman is distinguished by how many people serve him. I remember reading years ago when I was a boy about how in ancient China, it was fashionable for very wealthy and influential men to grow their fingernails incredibly long. They would grow their fingernails 7, 8, 10, 12 inches long. And when they would grow that long, they would become curved. And then they would encrust them with jewels and all these different things. And there they would. Now, obviously, when you've got fingernails that long, you can't even brush your own teeth. You'd be breaking a nail every day. And then that would just defeat the whole purpose there, right? And so what do you do? You have to have a servant brush your teeth for you. And that's why they grew their nails that incredibly long, because it was a way of saying, I don't have to do anything for myself. Nothing. Other people do everything for me. See, I can't do a thing for myself. That's how wealthy and influential I am. Now, Jesus says that kind of thinking is completely wrong. The world might think of that as greatness, but God doesn't. Jesus said that true greatness is displayed by not how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. Friends, don't get the wrong idea here. Jesus didn't abolish ambition, but he changed it. You see, instead of the ambition to rule, he said, now I want you to have the ambition to serve. Instead of the ambition to have things done for us, now have the ambition to do things for others. Jesus is saying, I want you to be an others-centered person. You know what's amazing about this is that Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. And so when he said last of all and servant of all, he was really describing himself. He accurately expressed his nature. Jesus came and he left the ivory palaces of heaven and he came down to this earth to make himself last of all and servant of all and to do it for our sakes. And might I remind all of us that he did this no more vividly than when he was on the cross. When he bore the sin that you and I deserve. You might say, well, Jesus was never last. Well, he was pretty famous in this life. Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. That's Jesus last of all. You might say, well, people suffered more than Jesus did on the cross, not spiritually. No man ever endured the spiritual agony before God the Father that Jesus Christ endured when he who knew no sin became sin for us and he became last of all and servant of all. He lived that way as a manner of thinking all the time, but he fulfilled it in its absolute zenith when he hung on the cross and paid for our sins as a faithful, loving Savior. Then look at what Jesus did in case the point hasn't been driven home enough. Verse 36, then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, of course, in that day, as in all others, people loved their children. But in different cultures, children have different social standing. And in that culture, in that day, children just didn't have any social standing. The idea was that children were there to be seen and not heard, and they were really regarded more as property than as individuals. Children were socially insignificant. And so for Jesus to call attention to a child and say, how you receive this child shows how you receive me, you know what Jesus is saying. 
You walk into a room and you see the weak and the insignificant, the people on the margins. Jesus says, you go up to them and greet them in my name. Oh, sure, everybody wants to be around the movers and the shakers and the popular people and the people we're comfortable with. But Jesus says, this little child, you see, if the disciples walked in the room and the child was there, he would be invisible to the disciples. But Jesus said, he's not invisible. He's my representative. You embrace those around you like that. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus is getting across two points. First of all, children reflect this sort of servant's mentality that he's trying to show us, but also the way we receive children shows how far along we are in this. But we do know that children reflect that servant's mentality. Children aren't threatening. You ever been scared of meeting a five-year-old in a dark alley? I don't think so. And so, friends, when we have a tough, intimidating presence, we're not like Jesus. Children aren't very good at deceiving others, are they? Oh, they try. We laugh at it as parents, don't we? You know, they, they think they're getting one over on us, and we just sort of smile. But, friends, and when, when we're good at hiding ourselves and deceiving others, we're not like Jesus. Now, Jesus says, be like a child and receive the children. And not just literally, of course, that has a part with it, but friends, spiritually too. You know, in any group of people, we love to to divide them up into different groups, into different categories. And whenever you do that, there's always some people out on the margin, out on the edge, out on the fringe. Friends, you see what Jesus challenged you to do right now. Go out to the fringes and love them in Jesus' name. That beautiful thing to do. Now, here's the thing about it, too. Two, two points to conclude with. First of all, I want you to see the point between what the devil wants to do with children and what Jesus wants to do with children. What did the devil want to do with children? Throw them in the fire, drown them, kill them. What did Jesus want to do with children? Take them in his arms and bless them and use them as glorious examples of his kingdom. The other thing I want you to see is, who has more fun, children or grown-ups? You know, friends, that's the, the real secret of all, the, the servants of all, the last of all, the, the people who have this heart of children. It's absolutely the most thrilling way to live. Living as an others-centered person, following in the nature of Jesus, it's absolutely the most thrilling way to live. Because you're not hung up on yourself. You realize it's not all about me. It's all about what I can be for others. And oh, there's real richness in that. Nothing more discouraging and depressing than the person who's hung up on themselves. And Jesus says, you can be free from that. Last of all, servant of all, and here's a child for you to practice on. Let's ask the Lord to make that true to our hearts right now. Father, we thank you that Jesus came down from heaven to be last of all and servant of all and, well, like a child unto us. I pray, Lord, that if there's any here this morning who have not made that kind of commitment to Jesus Christ, Lord, any here this morning who have not yielded to Jesus and the great work that he accomplished on the cross for them, that you would change their hearts right now. And Father, that you would lead them into a submission to Jesus Christ. You know, friend, if you're that person right now in the quiet place of your heart, you can tell Jesus right now, I want to receive you. I want to to receive the work that you did on the cross as my salvation. If that's you right now, tell Jesus that in the quietness of your own heart. Friends as well, 
There may be any point that we've talked about this morning that the Lord impresses to your heart. Maybe you're in the place of the Father where you say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you're in the place of the, of the disciples, too concerned about your own standing, your own greatness. Give it to Jesus right now. Lord, bless every one of us, whatever we're dealing with before you. Help us to surrender and submit our life to you in more and more glorious ways. See the greatness of your work done in us. Draw us close to you, God, and glorify yourself through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.